Well, I hope you've made your way to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue our series entitled The Hall of Faith. And we've made our uh, way as far as verse 21, and that's where we will pick it up this morning. Hebrews chapter 11 is a chapter given to us by the writer of Hebrews to encourage his readers by the illustrations of the individuals that he has included, demonstrating that God works through ordinary people in extraordinary ways. And the manner in which he is able to do that is by the manner of faith that they exercise towards him. That faith allows them to believe something even before it is physically tangible or something that they can set their hand upon or uh, see physically in front of them. It is something that they can still trust God to do even though they may not see it or even participate within it, but they can live accordingly up to it. And so as we move through Hebrews chapter 11, we've uh, paralleled it to uh, give you the example of one walking through a hall of fame, seeing the different inductees there within the hall of fame. And as we look at each individual, there's always one uh, inductee that you stop and look at and say, you know, do they really belong here? All right, wait a minute, I, 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 this guy's record really wasn't that good. You know, does he really belong here? I mean, really? Uh, him? And undoubtedly, the one we come to this morning is one that I believe that as we are making our way through the Hall of Fame, we, uh, Faith, we have to take a minute and just say, really? He made it? I'm talking about the individual Jacob. Now, Jacob spans much of the narrative of the Old Testament book Genesis. And within those chapters that Jacob is contained, we see much of his failures and his faults and very little of his virtue. But yet God is using him and displaying him for us and the writer is giving him to us as an illustration to show that even in our failures, even through our faults, God is faithful to fulfill what he has promised. And as we come to Jacob, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're working through the patriarchs. And as we get through them, we see that the blessing of the, uh, that God had given Abraham then went to Isaac, then went to Jacob. And now Jacob's going to give it to his grandsons, Esau and Manasseh, here in uh, our text this morning, the sons of Joseph, showing that the momentum of this blessing is continuing on through the ranks in which God had established before the foundations of the world. But there's a phrase that we're going to look at today. Because I am convinced, after looking at it for the entire week, that it's this phrase that God wants us to notice together. It is a phrase that is given to us by the Hebrew writers, again, as the Hebrew writer uh, similarly, when it came to the person of Isaac, he is writing to this, us the same way concerning the person Jacob. He's assuming that we know the backstory. He's assuming that we know the details that will allow us to discover what he is trying to convey to us by looking at the words in which he's given us and then comparing those words to the backstory and saying, oh, now I get what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. 
It is this last phrase that we will concentrate on this morning. Because I believe that for Jacob, it was one of the most significant moments in his life. It was a moment in time that his life changed forever. He was never the same man again going uh, forward after this one night that he had that was extraordinary in its, uh, in its content. So as we come to verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and then this last phrase, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. God is not only concerned about the manner in which we begin our walk or relationship with him, God is equally concerned with the manner in which we finish that walk and relationship with him. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the Hebrew writer, which we will look at eventually in this particular series together, states for us clearly that God is the author and the finisher of our faith. God is equally concerned about both. Not just the manner in which you start your walk and your relationship with God, but also the manner in which you finish and end your relationship with God here on this earth. And frankly, everything in between. God is the author and the finisher of our faith. And the manner in which an individual finishes their race here on this earth, their walk, their relationship with God, is of great concern to New Testament writers. It seemed very clearly to me that they were more concerned about the manner in which you finished than the manner in which you started. Even to say that they would see an individual who finished well, but maybe started off roughly. Or finished well and started off well, but then in the middle of a relationship with God, somewhat stumbled and fell and got distracted and walked away and wandered away and so forth. But then they finished well again. They would always see that finishing well as the end goal. That was the objective, to finish well, to finish the race. And of course, Paul used this constantly concerning his own life. When he wrote words such as this, at the end of his life to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he wrote this. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Hence, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Marathons are much different than sprints in every aspect of the race. Marathons intrigue me. In fact, the Chicago Marathon is happening next month, and there's a couple gentlemen I've heard through the grapevine that are going to be running the Chicago Marathon from our church. Okay, well, I was going to give you full credit. A half marathon. Not only did he celebrate his four-year anniversary from uh, being freed from uh, cancer, but now he's going to run a half marathon with Dave Tatum over there. And you know, again, 
they all start out in this manner. You see their smiles on their faces. They're all pumped. They're all ready to go. They're running. Their numbers are on them. And they're just looking at the camera and just running into it. And you're like, wow. But some of those marathons are 26 miles long. Then they get to the halfway mark and you know the, the, the smile is gone and the fatigue is starting to set in and they're all now trying to push through the pain and so forth. And then you get to the very end. And then you get those few who are, I'm confident are aliens. They just run past the finish line. You know, they're sprinting, you know, and they're like this and they've just run 26 miles and they stop and they go and get a hamburger at McDonald's, you know. But then there are the other real people in life that are pretty much look like Frankenstein crossing the the finish line. But they still finish the race. To the marathon runner, it is more important to finish the race than it is on manner in which they've started it and even endured it. Their goal is to finish the race. And finishing the race in any capacity in a marathon is finishing well. I give anyone a credit for finishing a 26-mile marathon, don't you? I don't care if it's taken, taken them six days and you know four hours and so forth. They still made it across the line. Christianity is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And there will be times that maybe will start off really well, and then they'll experience the trial, troubles, and tribulations that come towards one who is a Christian in our world, and then they'll find the difficulties there, and some will fall out of the race, and Paul was very concerned about those individuals. There are others that will weather through it, and though they don't finish the race maybe as the first or the second, they still cross that line. They still finish it, and to Paul, that was finishing the race well. You know, there are others who are you know, getting to the end of their, you know, life's work and so forth. And, you know, who may not finish as well. And it's it's a tragedy to see. Jacob, if you were to map out his life and you were to look at it as a graph, it wouldn't even be a a roller coaster with great highs and great lows. It would be uh, mediocre, then low, mediocre again, then low, mediocre and then low again. Jacob never really seemed to be the instrument of uh, inspiration to many. He was never one that was touted as an example for us to look at except here where the individual writer of Hebrews says that by faith he blessed the sons of Joseph and then he bowed his head on his staff and worshiped God. Jacob was, the indiv- was an individual that was a problem to God. There are many problems for God in the body of Christ. People who are works in progress. Where God wants to work in and through the person's life so greatly, but he needs them first to surrender their, their life to him for him to do so. And often we resist God in every way, shape, and form. 
We, he tries to sanctify us, bring into us into the image of Jesus Christ, but we resist that process because, you know what, we want to hold on to our old identity, the identity of the flesh, those things that we were good at, the things that we were confident in within ourselves, those things we want to hold and we want to embrace and we don't want to relinquish control of there before God. And as a result, God says, listen, I, can't, I need to get past that because what I do through you, I want the glory for. I don't want you to think you have confidence in yourself to do what you need to do for my purposes and for my, for my glory. I want you to come to the end of yourself and then realize that it's all me. And we can frustrate God in this process. And Jacob frustrated God to no end. You know, Jacob, from the moment he was born, was a conniver, a deceiver, a supplanter. In fact, that's what his name means. And every opportunity that he had the opportunity to uh, shaft over his brother, he would do so. His brother gave up the birthright. Esau didn't want it, so Jacob took advantage of that. Jacob's mom provoked him and helped him take advantage of Isaac as he was dying and allowed Jacob the birthright. And we looked at that last week. But now that Jacob had the birthright, he didn't know how he was going to fulfill that. He was, one, he was into one conniving scheme after another. And Jacob was confident that he could bring about everything that God wanted to bring about through his conniving and his scheming and his old nature. And God said, no, that's not going to take place. It got so bad between him and Esau that Jacob had to run away to protect himself from his brother's uh, retaliation, his retribution. And as Jacob found himself alone in this place called Bethel, as he laid there under the stars, God appeared to him and says, Jacob, I'm going to do all these things. You think this place is amazing because you see the angels ascending and descending on the ladder here at this place. What you're going to see me do later on in and through you is going to blow your mind. But guess what, Jacob? I don't need your help. So get out of the way. And to begin the learning process, he then went to find a wife and he went and dealt with his uncle Laban, who was just the biggest schemer and conniver as Jacob was. And you know the story. He wanted to marry the one daughter and after seven years, Laban gave him the older daughter first. Jacob was surprised. Well, how could you do this to me? It's like, really? You know, hey man, you you, you got played. And Jacob's like, Wow, I can't believe this happened to me. It's usually me playing someone else. So then he worked another seven years and got the daughter in which he wanted. And through them, the children were born that created the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. But later on, it came down to a place in Genesis chapter 32 where Jacob knew that his brother Esau was after him. So Jacob got the idea, well, listen, how can I appease my brother, soften the blow, so on and so forth? I'm going to put together a peace offering, a gift offering, an appeasement offering, and it was very large and very abundant and so forth. And the night before that Jacob thought that he would meet Esau there uh, in the desert, he put together this offering, had it prepared, told his wives and his families to stay on the one side of the Jadok River. He was going to go on the other. And 
possibly just wanted to get away to have one good night's sleep before he had to get into it with his older brother Esau and try to weasel his way out of it. And if all else failed, to run away from Esau in case Esau was still angry about being, uh, you know, taken advantage of concerning his birthright. And so we catch up with Jacob at a moment that I believe is so remembered here in our verse in 21 that it is indicated by him bowing his head to his staff and worshiping God. And now we're going to discover why that staff is needed. We're going to discover what that staff means to Jacob and why it changed his life forever. This was the moment in which God finally got a hold of Jacob and broke him to the point in which he could no longer depend upon himself, his conniving, his scheming, and everything else that went with it. Basically, his reliance on the old nature. This was the moment in time where Jacob could finally break away from that. But it was going to be a very painful experience. It was going to be an experience that Jacob would remember the rest of his life, undoubtedly. And it would come to play and it would come to fruition in this last moment at the time of Jacob's death when the Bible tells us in chapters 47 and 48 of Genesis that this blessing has been given to the children of Joseph and at the last one, Manasseh and Ephraim, the younger got the blessing over the older, just as it had transpired from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, and now on down, that the lineage, the prize, the land in which God had promised these people would be secure through them. And Jacob had full confidence that God was going to do what he promised to perform. But what about Jacob? You see, God's not only concerned about what he does through your life, he's more concerned about you. He wants all of you, not just parts of you. The writers of the New Testament said it this way, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The word that bothers me there isn't love, it's the word all. That word troubles me because you know what it means in the Greek? All. It means everything. God wants all of me. We are just not simply vehicles in which God uses to bring about his purposes here on this earth and then he discards us or doesn't care about us in the process. He cares greatly for us. And though he wanted to use Jacob and was going to use Jacob and Jacob would be the one in whom the special blessing would move through, he didn't want to leave Jacob in the condition of that conniving, scheming little guy that he was. He wanted to uh, allow Jacob to interact and experience God in its fullest capacity. There are many today, I want you to listen to me for a moment. There are many today that desire to experience and to see God working in supernatural and miraculous ways. And I'm all for that. Amen. However, though, That's not the only medium in which we can watch God work supernaturally and miraculously. 
the platform in which I see the Bible indicate to us is that God works supernaturally and miraculously when we are in our weakest state before him. God works supernaturally and miraculously in and through us when we surrender all to him. We give God then the tapestry, if you will, the, uh, the palette, if you will, to do then all that he desires to do. And in the course of it, we get to see God like never before. Sometimes in very subtle ways. You know, yes, God can move the Red Sea. I have no problem with that. I, I have full confidence that if God ever wanted to deliver us to Michigan, that I could go down to, you know, the uh, Lake Michigan and stand on the shore and raise up my hand and he'd part Lake Michigan, no problem, because he wants us to go from Illinois to Michigan where the taxes are maybe a little better. I don't know. But you'd also have to confess if you've walked with God in a very long time, for a very long period of time, or maybe in a short period of time, that sometimes it's the everyday little things that God does that just are overwhelming, that are just so miraculous. God providing a financial need at the 11th hour. God healing from something that individuals says uh, that aren't curable. Uh, God doing healing relationships and lives and so forth. Uh, God bringing about certain changes in our lives, opening doors to allow us to advance in certain directions in our lives and so forth. All of these must be taken into consideration to see and to experience God into our life. In fact, what's interesting to me is that when Paul was working through the spiritual gifts there in Corinthians... He says, you know, you could have tongues and you could have wisdom and faith and everything, but if you have not love, you have what? Nothing. It tells me that there's a greater experience actually in love. And where should that love be directed? Well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if he's telling me that this is a greater experience, shouldn't that be the experience that we, that we seek and covet? Sure, absolutely. But see, he didn't want to leave Jacob in this position. And Jacob now was again scheming. I'm going to work through this problem with my brother Esau. I'm going to appease him with the gift. I'm going to try to talk my way out of it. And if everything else fails, I'm simply going to run as fast as I possibly can. The problem was is that God said, oh, no, you're not. Turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 32. And I want to read this together. For here we have the introduction of the staff in which he leans upon to worship the Lord. In verse 22 of chapter 32. His family is on the other side of the Jadok River with the gifts that he has prepared for his brother Esau. He is now trying to just get a moment of quiet, a good night rest undoubtedly before he interacts and deals with his brother the very next day. In verse 22 of chapter 32 of Genesis, in the same night he arose and took 
his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. But, and it says, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Last thing that you want to deal with. Quiet night's sleep, and then someone keeps you up all night. Who is this man that's wrestling with Jacob? And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. The word wrestling there means contended with, struggled with, conflicted with Jacob. Now I will tell you that I believe that this is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. That this man wrestling with Jacob is none other than Jesus himself. And he's wrestling with Jacob, trying to dissuade him and trying to break him of his personal dependence on his old nature, his self-scheming, his, his, his um, conniving, and his, you know, uh, his ability to talk himself out of situations. God's trying to break him of all of that. But he didn't prevail. You see, Jacob was stubborn. We don't know any stubborn people, do we? And even God had trouble with Jacob. And he wouldn't prevail. And God said, that's it. I tried. I tried to reason with you. I tried to work through this with you. I wrestled with you for this entire evening. And you're not going to give. You're still going to be conniving. You're still going to be a schemer. You're still going to try to weasel out of it through the ability of your old nature. I'm going to touch your hip. And the hip came out of socket. And it undoubtedly hurt Jacob tremendously. But the plan of Jacob, his ultimate fallback, the possibility of running away from his conflict with Esau had now been taken away from him. God says, you are going to deal with it and you're going to deal with it as I would have you to deal with it. That's what he's saying here. And as we pick it up in verse 26, and then he said, let me go for the day has broken. This is Jesus speaking to Jacob. And Jacob said, no, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's saying, you can't leave me in this state. You need to bless me, Lord. I'm crippled now. I'm going to die. My brother is going to kill me. Don't you understand the circumstances that I am in? And I can, I'm, I'm hearing this play out in Jacob's tonality. Which brings me to a very good point. Often we determine the position or the um, posture in which a character of the Bible is taking by assuming we understand the tonality of the voice behind the question or the statement. For example, this is where I see it the most often uh, confusing the setting there in Genesis, when God seeks out Adam and Eve and says, Adam and Eve, where are you? Okay? Now we've got the statement. We've got the words in which he used. What we don't have is the tonality, do we? So if 
you believe that God is angry at that moment, it most likely will be then when you read it or teach it or explain it to someone, you'll say, God came to the garden and said, Adam and Eve, where are you? Yeah, no. But if that's not the tonality of God, then we, like Moses, have depicted God improperly, haven't we? We've given uh, anger where anger should not be placed. What happens if he said, Adam and Eve, where are you? As a caring father would call out for his lost kids. Changes everything, doesn't it? Don't you wish we had the tonality of the conversation here between Jacob and this individual? We do. It's in the book of Hosea, believe it or not. It's in the book of Hosea, chapter 12, verse 4. It tells us that Jacob is crying now and he's pleading with God. Don't go until you bless me. It's not a demand, it's he's begging, he's pleading. Don't leave me like this, Lord. And the Lord said to him, very interesting here, and he said to him, do not go unless you bless me. Verse 27, and he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then Jesus said back to him, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. That's not who you are. You are not a deceiver. You're not a schemer. You're not a surplanter, a heel catcher any longer. I'm going to call you Israel. One who has struggled with God. One who has been changed by God. The word struggle by God is what Israel means. And when you look at it, it means one who has struggled and one who has been changed by. You're no longer the man you once were, Jacob. So don't look at and see yourself as that. You know, if we could simply understand that we as believers in Jesus Christ, we are viewed differently by God than we did when we were f- before we were in Christ. Do we realize that? Before we were in Christ, God saw us as enmity with God. God saw us as an individual that was opposed in rebellion uh, to God. But after we've come to Christ... God the Father now sees us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. He sees the ultimate perfection in which Christ is going to bring within our lives within us. It's up to us now to see that same thing. It says, no, I don't want you to carry the name Jacob. That's not who you are anymore. And when you become a Christian, you are not the same anymore than you once were. You're somebody completely different, man. And that's exactly what he is saying here. And then he says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. How did he prevail? He prevailed by receiving the blessing from the Lord. But how did he receive that blessing? Why did he receive the blessing? Because he earned it? No, it's because he was broken before the Lord. He was broken before God. And God says, now, Jacob, I can use you. Now I can do all that I want in and through you. 
Now I can glorify myself through you and you will understand that it is me and not you bringing about these things. Now, Jacob, you're ready to go. That's what he is saying to Jacob. And as it plays on here, then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Penel, saying, for I have seen God's face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. I met God and he changed my life forever. He knew in whom he was wrestling with that night. And God blessed him because of his brokenness before him. And sure enough, he now had to rely, that is Jacob, Israel had to rely upon God rather than himself going forward. And now fast forward with me, if you will, to the end to our verse this morning in Hebrews. And understand with me that as he bowed his head and worshiped the Lord on his staff, do you understand what Jacob was doing at that moment? For this staff represents that moment that God got a hold of me completely. This staff represents the moment that I changed from Jacob to Israel This staff represents the fact that no longer was I able to continue on in my old nature. I had to serve God in the new nature in which he has given me. And I was therefore completely and utterly dependent on him for everything that he has given me. And God has shown himself faithful ever since that moment. And now in my blessing of my grandchildren before the Lord, I can bow and worship the Lord upon the staff that I have before me, knowing full me that what God has promised he is able to perform. That's what this means here. This is what Jacob is remembering at that moment that brings his mind and heart as he bows on his deathbed before his death and worships God on the staff. Undoubtedly, Lord, thank you for this staff. Thank you for breaking me, Lord. Thank you for touching my hip and taking it out of socket. And though it was painful and though it was life-changing and though it devastated me at the moment, Lord, I see now what you're doing. I understand it. I get it. And now here on my deathbed, even though I am in Egypt and my grandchildren are in Egypt and my sons are in Egypt, I know that one day you are going to take us out of here. And you're going to bring us into the promised land in which you've promised us. And you're going to establish us as a nation. And so in this act of contrition in my life, I bow my head to the staff that remembers that not only were you concerned with what you were going to do through me, you were concerned about me the whole entire time. That's what God does. Paul the Apostle saw it the same way. And I want to end with this if I may. Paul the Apostle was given such a great privilege of blessing, of position, of authority, that God allowed a thorn in his flesh to remain. We don't know exactly what that thorn 
is, so we can't be dogmatic about it. I personally believe it was a physical affliction. But Paul saw it as the instrument in which allowed God to use him the way God desired to use him. God saw it as, or I should say, Paul saw it as the catalyst for allowing God to work through him for his greatness and his glory. Where he saw that in the wake of this affirmity, it brought Paul to a state of weakness that allowed God to show himself strong. That this was the tapestry in which God needed to settle within me to allow me the grace and the privilege and the honor and the, and, and the place of authority that I, own, that I have and to keep it humbly. As he wrote in this 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians, he says in verse 5, On behalf of this man I will boast, he's talking about the one who went up to the third heaven, who undoubtedly was him. But on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should have boasted, I would have been not a fool, for I would have been speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears of me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with God, the Lord, about this, and the Lord said to me that he he will not leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, God said. Therefore, I will boast more gladly of my weakness, Paul said, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The same mindset. As Jacob's hip was touched, this thorn that Paul uh, was given by God in his flesh to keep him in a place of humility. But Paul also saw this as a necessity because one who runs a race and runs it to win will temper every area of a person's flesh to allow God to work in and through him for his glory. Do you not know, he writes, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it, he says. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box against one who simply beats the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I should find myself disqualified. Paul saw the necessity that if we are going to allow God to use us, we need to deal with every area of our flesh. And Jacob was unwilling to do that, and God loved him too much to leave him the way he found him, so he touched his hip. Paul had such knowledge, he had such authority, he had such prominence and privilege that God says, no, this thorn I will leave with you. 
And Paul says, fine, because now I realize that when I am weak, you are strong. See, sometimes God needs to break us before He can truly use us for His glory. But when it was all said and done, both Paul and Jacob thanked the Lord, realizing that it was necessary. Because as you lay on your bed that last moment of your life, what will matter to you but that of eternity? And now you can know that God worked in you so that you may rejoice eternally with him, knowing that you will hear these words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But to get there, God must first sometimes break us of ourselves, change us from Jacob to Israel. And sometimes that's very difficult. And it comes in all different shapes and sizes and forms. It might be a career that he takes away. It might be a relationship that he takes away. It might be something else, your wealth that he takes away, your health he may take away. But the point is, is that he's working in you to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And remember that what what Paul says, that when I am weak, then I am strong. Remember that. The next time you go through a situation like Jacob, Remember that at the end of his life, he bowed his head on his staff and he worshiped God.